It's our scripture reading. It comes from Revelation chapter 21. We're going to jump around a little bit in this passage. <clears throat> Revelation 21, beginning in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going to have a rather abrupt transition into something rather petty and inconsequential, but we will get back to our scriptures in a moment, just bear with me for a moment in my pettiness. Throughout my life, I've had my fair share of frustration with mascots of schools that I have been associated. I told you it was going to get petty and inconsequential. Frustration with schools I've been associated with either as an athlete or as a fan of the team. A very simple example is the college that I graduated from, a small Christian college, the mascot was uh, the Spartans, the Spartans, which was always a little bit baffling to me that we would have a fierce, militaristic, violent mascot like Spartans or Crusaders. Uh, and maybe, uh, I don't want it to hit too close to home, but maybe that is, you know, a little bit of the enduring legacy of a certain view of the Christian faith. I don't know, but that's probably a conversation for a different day. My frustration with mascots, though, didn't begin in college. It actually started in high school. I grew up in the Illinois suburbs of St. Louis, and when I was in high school, we lived in a small town, a bedroom community of St. Louis that was called Troy, Troy, Illinois. What should our mascot have been? The Trojans. Yes, Lisa, you get it. Instead, we were the Knights. And it was always so frustrating to me. We had a tailor-made mascot ready for us. I still get annoyed just talking about it. And who doesn't want to be Trojan-like when it comes to athletics? I mean, if you remember that ancient, famous Greek epic poem, Homer's Iliad, you, you were probably required to read it at some point during school. And Admittedly, I'm not an expert when it comes to Greek mythology or literature, and unfortunately, Ed's not here to fill in some of these details. But, but you may remember that story that's set during the 10-year Trojan Wars, where the Greek coalition led by King Agamemnon attempts to besiege the ancient city of Troy. And of course, you probably know, eventually the Trojans fall. They, they fail in this endeavor, the old... Trojan horse debacle fools them, but they didn't just throw up the, the white 
flag and surrender immediately and just lay down and allow this conquest to take place. They held their own through a decade of violence. It was a valiant effort. Who doesn't want to be represented by the Trojans when it comes to high school athletics? Clearly, I do because I'm still getting worked up about this 20 years later. The reason I bring all of this up, it's petty and inconsequential and seems disconnected to where we're heading in the book of Acts, but as we read this story in Acts, um, we're going to discover that the story that Luke is telling us takes place in a part of the world near the ancient city of Troy. And I think it's possible that Luke, the author of Acts, is at least under the surface, alluding to some of these ancient wars in relation to what is happening now with Paul and his conquest into new territory, the conquest of the gospel. And we can put air quotes around conquest when it comes to the gospel. But as Luke tells us here in Acts 16 about Paul's second missionary journey, is it possible that he's also telling us something about the nature of the spread of Christianity in general? Maybe this is going to seem like a stretch, but I think even if Luke's audience wasn't immediately taken back to some of these great wars or some of these stories of conquests in this part of the world, I think it is at the very least an interesting angle to come at this story in Acts 16 from. So let's get right to it. Acts 16, we'll begin reading in verse 6. And now I have all of these cheers from high school about the nights running through my head, so this is going to be challenging. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we find here in Acts chapter 16 a travel journal of sorts detailing some of the specific movements Paul and his ministry companions were making. We're told that they make their way through Phrygia and Galatia, up to Mysia. They're prohibited from going into Bithynia. And finally, we are told they end up in a city called Troas. Now, before we get to that detail of this location, Troas, one thing I think that's unavoidable at this point as we consider some of these travel details is The fact that Paul and his companions were, in many ways, taking it day at a time. Perhaps they had a rough mental itinerary or some inclinations about where they might want to head during this missionary journey, um, what might be the most strategic for the mission they were on, but their plans are not set in stone in any way, shape, or form. It reminds me of a a trip I was on once, a couple of summers before Nanette and I got married. Two friends and I traveled around the country for a few months in a minivan, and I'll never forget the morning we departed on this trip. We started in Jackson, Mississippi, 
and we loaded all of our camping gear into the van. We started driving out of Jackson and still had no idea where we were going. We didn't know if we were going to go to the West Coast or West Coast or the East Coast for you. It's backwards for me, but we didn't know which direction we were going until we got to the turnoff to the freeway and had to make a split-second decision. Let's go to the East Coast first. It was, and the whole trip was like that. We didn't have any plans, no set itinerary. We were very much going by the, the seat of our proverbial pants. Is that the, the saying, flying by the seat of our pants? That, that was that entire trip. Now, I don't presume that Paul's approach to his mission was quite that haphazard, but one thing we discover in these details is that they were clearly not certain about where they were heading. They were clearly listening for the voice, listening for the direction of God, and when they heard or, or sensed or felt that prompting, they listened and they yielded. This is what Austin was talking about a couple of weeks ago, listening and yielding, letting go of some of our ideas and some of our plans to follow where God might lead. That is, in many ways, the crux of the Christian life. In verse 6 of this chapter, we are told they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak in Asia. Verse 7, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And then down in verse 9. They sense that God is speaking to them in this vision or a dream leading them to Macedonia. So in this discernment process, Paul and his companions enter, that there is undeniably an openness. Even if they have an idea of where they want to head, there is a level of receptivity to the voice of God, even in some of these minor travel details. And I think that's important for us consider. In this case, because even what seems minor in the moment, even what seems insignificant on the surface, you know, should we go to Bithynia or Macedonia or Timbuktu? Who knows? An, an argument can be made for each of those locations. There are people that he, need to hear the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. We can make an argument for all of those different plans, but what seems insignificant on the surface, like which direction we go, is actually maybe paving the way for something much bigger. In this case, the overall advancement of the kingdom of God, the conquest, again in air quotes, the conquest of the gospel in these early years following the resurrection of Jesus. Something that I think we might glean from a narrative like this that is telling us a story that isn't always normative, but something that I think we can glean, and my prayer for us is that as individuals and as a community, that we might be a people marked by a similar openness to hearing from God and understanding that our best laid plans, our logical arguments for why something is the best, that that would never supersede a conviction that God might be leading us into something new, leading us into something we weren't expecting, maybe something we weren't even wanting. This is actually one of the things I really appreciate about the Pentecostal tradition of my youth. And to be fair, the, the Pentecostal movements of the early 20th century had a speckled past. Like any other movement or organization, there is good and there is bad. And furthermore, an openness to the things of the Spirit is not at all limited to Pentecostals. I don't want that to come across, but 
I do have a deep appreciation for the tradition's historic openness to hearing from God and a willingness to let go of some of our own plans, to yield and to follow into unknown territory, um, even though that uncertainty might be quite uncomfortable. A people marked by a willingness to dream. That's, that's my hope for me. That's something that is difficult for me, but something that I hope to be open to, to, to dream and remain open to the possibility that God might speak maybe in those supernatural, inexplicable ways, but to also have a willingness to be open to simply dreaming of new possibilities in the middle of unpleasant, uh, unpleasant um, present circumstances. And I think this is where the, the prophetic tradition, imagining new possibilities on the horizon for God's people to enter into, this is where I think the prophetic tradition um, that the confluence between the prophetic tradition and Pentecostalism might be found. I think this could be a tremendous asset that Pentecostals can bring to the table of the larger Christian family, an openness to the direction of the Spirit, imagining new possibilities in the middle of unpleasant present circumstances. Before we move on, we're, I actually want to make it through quite a bit of the rest of this story, but before we do, I want to return to the little bit I started with, the, my frustration with mascots, and what this detail that we find in Acts 16, how it might be significant in relation to where we started with the Iliad and Troy. We find in this story that Paul and his traveling companions the beginning of this section, have found themselves in Troas, city of Troas. They're prepared to go wherever God might be leading them on this journey, and they discern that they are supposed to head from Troas into Macedonia. Now, for modern readers, for folks like us coming at this as products of the 21st century, this seems like a rather mundane detail. But I think it's possible that there is a literary significance of what Luke is doing in the story here that is paving the way for the next major section in his book in Acts. And this is an argument that New Testament scholar Craig Keener makes. He, he argues that the city where Paul and his companions have this vision that leads them into Macedonia, the city of Alexandria Troas, this was a city that Greeks and Romans alike associated with the nearby ancient city of Troy due to simple geographic proximity. And Greeks often thought of Troy as the entry point to Asia. This is the dividing point. If we are going to try to conquer Asia, that conquest is going to begin in Troy. We see that in Homer's epic. We actually see it several hundred years later with Alexander the Great who seeks to conquer Persia. Both of those conquests begin in Troy. Why? This is where Asia begins. So any conquest of that land and any subjugation of its people is going to begin here. And so what we find Luke doing in the book, book of Acts is he's painting a similar picture, only the movement is in the reverse direction. 
So not from Europe into Asia, but rather Troas, from Asia into Europe. Keener argues that for Luke's original audience, their ears, upon hearing this minor detail, would have perked up. For, for Greeks, this would be Paul bringing this Eastern Asian religion from Asia into Europe. And this is significant in terms of what the gospel is seeking to accomplish. What might the significance of this major turning point in Luke's narrative be in the book of Acts? If Greeks and Romans often boasted as being the conquerors of at least parts of Asia, the fact that Paul in this story is setting out from Troas, from Asia, and going on a conquest of his own into Macedonia, this is actually a big deal. And I think there's some things this might be communicating, at least for us to consider. First of all, I think we have to reckon with the fact that Christianity is not a Western religion. It's not a Western religion. First of all, if, if we as Westerners, and maybe especially as Americans, think we have a monopoly on the Christian faith, we might want to take another look at history. We see in this story Troy located on the western edge of what was referred to at the time as Asia. This is where the spread of Christianity begins. I mean, really, the birthplace of the faith is just a, a few days' hike north of Africa. So this is the origin of our faith. This is where it spreads from Asia, as it were, into Europe. Christianity is not a Western religion, and even today, the argument can be made, I, I think, that the Christian church is strongest in Asia, in Africa, and Latin America. And so what is the significance of that? I think there is undoubtedly much that we need to learn from Christians from our brothers and sisters from the global south. And any sense of superiority that we might have or any sense of ultra-enlightenment because of some of our progressive ideals, I think it's misguided. Secondly, I think it's important for us to note in this movement that Paul and his traveling companions are making, uh, this reverse conquest, as it were, that it is not an exact replica at all of the violent, militaristic conquest of centuries past. This was a conquest of good news, of a peaceful kingdom whose king was crucified, was raised back to life, and his followers were now spreading this message. And so anytime our mission or our strategy for mission resembles a conquest like Alexander the Great, or anytime our sense of mission insists on hegemony or domination and control, we can be sure that we have missed the mark. If mission is about advancing the American way or if it's about advancing liberal ideas rather than proclaiming our King and our Lord Jesus Christ, we're, we're doing it wrong. Christian mission, as we find it in our scriptures, we find it in this journey of Paul. It is not about domination at all. It's, 
Not, not even about spreading cultural values and insisting that others accept your way of life or make your life easy or simple. In fact, the mission that Paul is on, and we're going to find this over the next couple of weeks, it's one that requires great sacrifice from him personally. He's going to suffer tremendously. We we see it in this chapter, Acts 16. We'll look at that story next week, but he sacrifices a lot. And not only does this mission that Paul is on place requirements on him that leads to great personal sacrifice, but it also necessarily places new adherents to the faith, new disciples of Jesus in a precarious position. When they are claiming that there is a Lord that stands in opposition to the leader of the empire, that is going to cause some problems. That could cost new converts greatly, especially Somebody like Lydia. Lydia, the woman that we are introduced to in this story. A woman who had some degree of wealth, some degree of social capital. We don't know exactly how much of either of those things she had, but to put it simply, Lydia did have something to lose. She was in this class of upwardly mobile folks and there was something that she might have to sacrifice. So again, back to this story. Paul, with his friends, are in Troas. They have a vision in the middle of the night, a dream of sorts of an unidentified man pleading with them to come to Macedonia and help them. And we see that Paul does not hesitate. He was in step with the Spirit in such a way he knew that this dream or this vision, which could probably easily have been written off as a heavy meal or drink that he had the night before. But he understands that this is the voice of God that is leading him into these new frontiers. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So here they are, the Spirit leads them into Macedonia and ultimately to Philippi. You probably are aware that one of the books in our New Testament is a letter that Paul writes to the church in this city, the the church that is being established on this missionary journey. So Paul and his friends arrive, and they spend some time getting to know this new city, and on the Sabbath day, they look for a local gathering of Jews. This was typical for Paul. When he went to a new city, he often began his work by connecting with the local Jewish population in that city. But in Philippi, that proves to be a difficult prospect. There wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, and perhaps that was due to the fact that there weren't enough Jewish men in the city to form a quorum necessary to have a synagogue. We don't know for sure, but there isn't one. But they do find a place of prayer outside of the city where a group of women routinely gathered on the Sabbath to join together and pray and to be formed in their faith. 
And Paul and his companions find this gathering. They sit down, begin having conversations with the women there, which leads to the establishment of the church in this new city. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we're told that one of the women that have gathered at this place of prayer was a woman named Lydia. We don't have a lot of information about Lydia in our Bible, but Luke does tell us that she was a God-fearer. We are also told that she was a dealer of purple cloth. Purple was a much more expensive dye than other colors and indicating that she likely had at least a moderate degree of wealth. Don't know how much, but she had some sense of affluence. And we also see that in the fact that she was presumably the owner of her own home. She invites these travelers to come stay with her. She extends hospitality of her own volition without consulting anybody else. Now, it is possible that the name Lydia is an ethnic designation that points to her place of origin, but that's rather conjectural at this point, and I don't know that it matters all that much in what Luke is hoping to accomplish in this story. One of the things that I think is most significant at this point is the simple fact that this woman in Philippi gathered on the Sabbath at this place of prayer that we are offered her name. Where Luke isn't offering many names in this story in Philippi, we don't get the name of the Philippian jailer that we're going to discover next week. So whoever this woman Lydia might be, Providing her name is important, and I think it at least begins to show that she played an integral role in the church in Philippi. So Lydia is baptized. Her entire household is baptized as well, and thus the seeds are planted for this new church in a hostile environment like the city of Philippi. We're going to... uh, continue considering some of that hostility in this city of Philippi next week. But at this point, I want to leave us with just a couple of reflections. First of all, I think Lydia in this story, this woman that we don't have many details about, I think she is an example for us. This is why. We see in this story that Luke tells us, as the Christian faith begins to spread into new regions often at this point into regions that weren't hospitable or receptive to this new rival kingdom with a rival king, a place where professing faith in Jesus as Lord necessarily would put you at odds with the empire, this faith affirmation for Lydia could have had tremendous ripple effects for her socially. Remember, she is in this place of upward mobility. She had a lot to lose because of this affirmation, and yet she counts the cost. She thinks not of her security and her own comfort, but receives this faith that has been handed to her by these individuals traveling from the east from Troas. 
So we find in this story that the faith is spreading into new frontiers. In this case, the city of Philippi. And that new territory presented new challenges. Challenges that might cost people greatly. And why I think this is significant for us to consider, one of the points of application I think we can draw from this story is the fact that I, it seems to me at least that we are in some ways entering a new frontier as well. Perhaps we are beginning to enter an age when our faith will not be respected or accommodated as it has been in decades past in this country. And the question that we need to come to terms with is, if that happens, how are we going to respond as the people of God? Will we respond in frustration and anger, insisting on our methods of conquest, insisting that we cling to some of our rights or what I hope to argue that we would do is, will we trust that our king is walking with us and walking before us, showing us the way of peace and leading to a peaceful kingdom? New frontiers, the Christian faith is always embarking on new frontiers, and I think we are today. New frontiers, a, a changing culture those are not obstacles that will prevent the advancing kingdom. It wasn't in the first century, and it won't be today. Culture might change. Things for the Christian church may become much more challenging than they are today, and that's okay. You know, as a pastor, I'm often asked a question or some version of this question, well, are you concerned about the church as we enter into new cultural territory? Are you concerned about the survival of the church as things seem to be shifting? And my answer is always, I'm, I'm not concerned at all. That the kingdom of Christ is going to advance. Whatever our culture looks like, whatever the culture in Philippi looked like, yes, it required great sacrifice on Paul's part and on Lydia's part and on the Philippian jailer's part, but the kingdom was advancing in hostile territory, it will continue to advance. We have a role to play in the advancing kingdom, but maybe it's a good thing that maybe an Americanized version of Christianity is beginning to shake a little bit. Hopefully, that means a return to a much more Christ-like kingdom. I'm not at all worried about cultural opposition to the church. It might be uncomfortable, but I think it will actually good, be, be good for our spiritual health in the end. If we can trust that Christ's kingdom is going to advance, we have a role to play in that, but it's going to advance. We are joining and following our king who is leading the way. Amen. Kevin, if you all want to come up. So this is my, my encouragement to you. If the Changing cultural landscape or, or the ground that seems to be shaking beneath you as maybe your faith isn't re as respected as it has been in days past. If, if that is concerning or anxiety-inducing, uh, I want to encourage you, do not despair. Do not despair. Christ is building his church. All we are called to do is remain faithful, to continue following him. And I want to urge you to continue walking that path. Would you stand this morning? And Stephanie, if you want to join me as we prepare 
to celebrate around the Lord's table.